We have Mike on Starlink from his boat in Catalina Island. So we're going to get into this kind of stuff in another couple of minutes. So it'll be interesting to have Mike participating with Starlink. Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Not too much to report on oil pricing, except the Saudis and their leaders, their crown prince, seem to want us have higher oil prices, which is great. I think if you just looked at a supply-demand balance on Exhibit C, you'd probably come up with $60 for WTI. Instead, WTI is 80 OPEC plus Russia have curtailed production. The Russians promised to curtail, but they never followed through. But Saudi has led the way and has taken an extra million barrels a day off the market since the 1st of July, and it's working. Everyone, of course, in any commodities worried about weak performance, economic performance in China. But the, the conventional wisdom out there is as long as demand, which is just around 100 million barrels a day, including NGLs and everything else, gets up by 1% or more than 1%. As long as the Saudis decide they want high oil prices, everything will be fine. And that's that. On natural gas, uh, this is Exhibit B. We need someone like the Saudis to curtail production in natural gas. Dry gas production in the U.S. was 90 Bs in 2020, and it's 101 average this year. And it's already at 102, which is what the predicted average is in 24. Everyone says LNG, 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 and LNG in 2020 exports were 7 Bs a day. And this year it'll be 13, so that's up 6. Well, 6 is a pretty big increase. Problem is that supply is up by 11. Now, fortunately, power demand, which was 32 Bs a day in 20, this year will be 35. So you've got an extra three. But the difference is that storage change, which in 2020 was a billion two a day, is going to be 3.4 a day. It's amazing, actually, that gas has behaved as well as it has. Now, why did gas go up so much? The average price in 2020 was 220, very low. It's been 270 in 2019. It was 370 in 21 and almost $6 in 22. So that increased price called for more production. So hopefully with the lower price, things will calm down on the increase. Now, the tricky part of that is of that increase of 11 Bs, at least six of it was from the Permian. And the Permian isn't a gas play, it's an oil play with associated natural gas. And the Wolfgang formation, which is the principal producing formation in the Midland subbasin and the Delaware subbasin, it's gassier as time goes on. 
So it, it is a little troublesome. And so oil's hanging in there at 80. Gas is hanging in there, average around 290 this year. The strip says, you know, 350, 360 next year. Hopefully that comes out. But the, the performance on the production side is a little troublesome. Exhibit A is going to be in the news in September because the federal government needs to have new budget for uh, to continue operating past September 30. The regular way is to do 12 expenditure bills originating in the House, have the Senate work on them, have them go to committee. The Senate and House have been out on August vacation. I don't know how much is likely to happen before September 30th. The typical solution is to do an extension. When Kevin McCarthy got the debt ceiling bill through, I think there was an outright or implied commitment to not do an extension. So he might need Democratic votes to do an extension. I think when he was elected speaker after 15 ballots, he made a commitment to not do things like that with Democrat votes. We look like we're doing great, especially compared to the Chinese. They have all kinds of problems in their real estate sector of their business, which is like at least 20% of their GNP. And we look, you know, because we've had good job numbers, lower inflation numbers, we look terrific. I think by the time we get to the first week of October, we're, we're not going to, relatively speaking, to the second largest economy. We're going to look like we have our own problems. What we concentrated on this week, and we will talk a bit about healthcare and a bit about AI and NVIDIA. What we concentrated on this week was how we all move information around. And for those of you with the 20-page memo, if you could turn to page five, Charter and Comcast are the two largest of the cable companies. Most of us download our Netflix and communicate, and we're wired up by cable companies or by Verizon or AT&T. This looked like a terrific business two, three years ago, but I'm going to describe something, and then we're going to have to get Jason and Mike to add to it. Say, starting two years ago, T-Mobile especially, because the other pages we up, page we updated was page six. T-Mobile, uh, which had a lot of spectrum and was set up to do 5G, started doing what is called fixed base wireless. What that means is that rather than have a wire to your house or to your apartment, you get it over the air. And they have definitely slowed Charter and, and Comcast down they're now flat on their year-to-year -year on their internet customers. Verizon has begun to do the same thing as T-Mobile. The service apparently is okay. Jason and Mike in their office in San Diego use it. Mike is out on a boat, and the Starlink system, which is put up by Elon Musk's SpaceX, works pretty darn well. It's low altitude, so there's not a delay as you would with a, a satellite that was further up. I suppose the risk of people who have, who like Comcast and Charter, who 
have copper or fiber around at people's homes or commercial businesses, they are potentially challenged by big space wireless, but also challenged by these low orbiting satellites that are put up by SpaceX. And with that, I've about reached a limit of what I can talk intelligently or not so intelligent about. So I think the next five or 10 minutes, we're going to turn over to Mike and Jason to elaborate on these issues. So over to you, Jason. Sure. I, th- I think at the end of the day, the having a wired connection to your house is probably the most efficient way to transmit data to a house or office. That said, we do our entire office building here, and it's not a big one in San Diego, but all the offices are utilizing Verizon's 5G wireless internet. We have a 5G tower just down the block, and everyone has in the window a little box placed, and and it serves as a Wi-Fi router, and we all get a, a, a very fast connection that's comparable to you know home broadband speeds. So, I, I think end of the day, it's not it's not going to compete against the wired connections for supplying internet to to fixed positions, but the wireless carriers built out these 5G networks all throughout urban areas, and the planning for that occurred before the pandemic and before work from home. So they have a tremendous amount of, of bandwidth in urban centers that are not being used, and what they're doing is converting that to these fixed fixed position wireless internet connections. So that's, that's what we're taking advantage of, and they have unused bandwidth on their networks that they're then supplying to Wi-Fi versus mobile connections for cell phones because there's a lot less people downtown, for instance. Um, Mike, do you have anything to add to there? Yeah, so I, I think the way the right way to think about this is what's the marginal cost to add a new connection? The advantage that Comcast and Charter have is they've got cable already in the ground, already run to the majority of households in the country. In order to run new cable, today they're running fiber. It's very expensive. And I think generally the math doesn't really pencil out that marginal additional customers cover their cost basis. When you look at it from a fixed wireless perspective, like Jason said, there's extra bandwidth available. And if you look at the diurnal pattern of data usage, you can mesh up different user types to maximize your utilization on the 5G tower. And then if you fill that tower up, then the question is, do you spend the additional, it's a step function in in CapEx, right? So do you spend the additional CapEx to add another tower in that region? The the kind of cool thing about both satellites and cell towers is your profitability can be analyzed on a per tower or per per satellite basis. All that is to say is that there's almost zero marginal cost for Verizon and T-Mobile until their towers are full. So that's pretty much impossible to compete against because they can just they can charge as little as, as possible. I think if I were running Comcast or Charter, I would probably not be investing in new fiber outlays. I would probably be milking the existing business you have because some of the technology that's coming and Starlink being one of them or that type will enable potentially cheaper on a marginal cost basis ability to deliver data communications. And I think maybe 
this is a good opportunity to talk through what Dish and EchoStar are doing, Jason. Yeah, I'll, I'll give a little background on what Dish is doing. So they have a they have a dying satellite television business, and they know this, and Charlie Ergen knows this. So he's he's looking at what the future of Dish Network is, and they've decided a decade ago that that it was going to be a five G wireless network. So they've spent a decade buying Spectrum, and now years building a, a network. And the way they've built that network is different than the incumbents. They've built it entirely in the cloud through AWS. So they're the backbone of their network lives on cloud servers rather than a distributed set of data centers that you know Verizon, for instance, manages themselves. That let them build the network at a fraction of building a traditional style network. Charlie Ergen's targeting, I think they've spent $8 billion, they're targeting $10 billion total. He claims he can finish his network for the, the remaining two, even after uh, prices have inflated the last couple of years. But I believe Verizon spends $30 billion a year to maintain what they have. So it's multiples lower. And just to interject, Mike is unusually well qualified to discuss this because he's on a boat using a Starlink system and in an <laughs> earlier part of his business career worked for a firm that provided communications by satellite at much more expensive cost than what Starlink costs. But over to you, Mike. Yeah, satellites are kind of interesting technology. And previously, everything was pretty much geosynchronous. The concept of creating a low Earth orbit satellite network always made sense. It just wasn't financially feasible because of how expensive launch vehicles were. So what SpaceX did is it completely changed the game in that it's much, much cheaper to launch stuff into space now than it used to be. So operating low Earth orbit constellation is, is it's practical. In fact, it's probably the only rational thing to do because the service is, is much better, much less latency. I might add that when you build a cell tower, normally you'd connect it through fiber connections to your internet backbone. If you look at covering the entire nation, so, so dishes covered their 72% you know, of the country's population, but now what's left is the, the rural areas in the country. And to cover those, you're building a cell tower probably on top of a hillside or, or elevated on a mountain, and you're running a fiber cable up to that cell tower. So as Mike was describing, if you want to go with the, the satellite connectivity part... Yeah, so that ends up being a very high marginal cost, right, to add that additional tower because you're trenching a fiber cable and connecting to a backbone. So the end around, and this is where the kind of vision for the EchoStar Dish Network merger is, instead of using a terrestrial backbone, instead use a LEO-based satellite constellation as your wireless backbone. So when you stand up a new tower in a rural area, instead of it hooking up to fiber, it would actually have its own, call it mini base station to communicate with the lowest Earth orbit satellites. So that's the, that's the vision. And the reason EchoStar is important is that they have not just a U.S. license, but actually a global license for S-Band, which is particularly well-suited to this type of connectivity. You, you could see a day where, you know, assuming DISH survives, they've got 
plenty of financial issues that that make the business quite precarious. Assuming it survives, the the big picture that they've put together here, as far as delivering data to 5G base stations via satellite network, is pretty exciting and provides an opportunity to have potentially a global 5G connectivity. So I'll leave it there. Anything else to add? Yeah, just one one thing, Mike uh, or Jason, if you could explain latency, or let me try to explain it, and then you can straighten me out. If if you have a satellite that is, you know, I I, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of miles, rather than a low satellite, the delay in uploading information or downloading information is significant. Is that a description of latency? Roughly, yeah. The, the time it takes to make a round trip connection to, in this case, a satellite and back down to a person somewhere else on Earth. And that distance is 1,200 miles to low Earth orbit, where geosynchronous is, oh, I don't know, hundreds of thousands. So if you think about a signal has to travel up to there, and maybe it hits a relay satellite, and then it travels down back towards Earth at a different spot, you might get a delay, a, a noticeable delay, you know, a half second or such. And, and low Earth orbit makes it that you don't even notice it. It's, it's just like talking between the, you know, the connections through the internet between cell towers. Let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. This episode of Telltales is brought to you by Topmark Capital. They're not your typical hedge fund. They use a blend of best practices from value investing, venture capital, and private equity, which gives them a unique perspective on market dynamics. And the results truly speak for themselves. Since inception in 2012, they've turned each dollar invested into more than $7 after all fees. Yes, you heard that right, $7. That's over 22% on an annualized basis. So, if you're a qualified investor who's looking for an innovative, emerging manager who truly understands the dynamics of the market and how to deliver impressive returns, visit topmarkcapital.com to learn more. And now, back to the show. We have 10 minutes left. NVIDIA is around all over the place, and it doesn't report earnings till next week. I mean, my own assessment of what I think is happening, and you guys are much better able to have a view here. My own view is that NVIDIA's results for their first fiscal quarter weren't terrific, but the founder, CEO, said their revenues were going to be $11 billion in the next quarter, and the stock doubled uh, or, or more. And it seems to me that the people who, you know, have taken up NVIDIA again, even though it's very high price, you know, trading at over 100 times free cash flow, are anticipating that maybe he'll say for the next quarter some significant increase over $11 billion or Jason, how how what else do you think is going on here while people move the stock up and down in advance of announcing their second quarter earnings? No, that's that's exactly it. I think they're selling every piece of hardware that they can make and they're making these new chips that are four times the cost of the last generation. It's it's almost like an arms race on who can have acquire the most Nvidia chips to to power it. We, uh, something we saw in the news this week was, uh, I believe it was Saudi Arabia has is, is placed a huge order of NVIDIA chips. So that's a, that's a nation state that's, that's buying these chips and not even companies. I, I think they're going to, 
hit it out of the park this quarter, and then they're going to announce an even bigger number for next quarter. Just the only question in my mind is how long can that sustain? And what about, Mike, what about TSMC's capacity to make these chips? Is that the limiting factor now, do you think? It is a limiting factor. Our understanding is Taiwan Semiconductor has added capacity on this node. And if you were to, this is what another analyst said. I don't know if this is 100% correct. But if you were to assume that all that incremental capacity went to NVIDIA, that would put them at an $80 billion data center run rate. So it's, it's very significant. We do know that they're also in talks with Samsung to add capacity. So NVIDIA is doing whatever they can possibly do to get capacity. And currently, they seem to be wafer constrained. Earlier in the year, they were constrained by other parts that go into these H100s. I think they said there's 22,000 parts in an H100. So it's not a simple computer, it's quite complicated. But today, it seems they've got the rest of it dialed. And now it's all about the wafer. Right. And, and- Potentially, space frees up in TSMC's fabs where Apple's going to transition to the, the latest and greatest three nanometer node for the new generation of iPhone. That, that production's, I'm sure it's underway right now. So where they're moving production from the former latest to the, to the, new, to the new fab, to the new node, what they're giving up could probably be allocated to NVIDIA. Right. Got about five minutes left, Jason. If we go to page 15, which is, you know, the healthcare page, any information on Lantheus or Vertex or Biontech or other things that have kind of attracted our attention this week? Yeah, Lantheus has been coming down, and uh, Mike and I have been trying to figure out why. And it seems there might be two reasons. One is is competition um, from a competing uh, diagnostic that we addressed last week. And we, we kind of feel that that's while the market's saying that's competition, it's it's not really due to the FDA's approved labeling on that diagnostic. The other reason is the treatment version of their pilarify. So the, the one that's delivering a radioactive particle that is not for imaging, but for treating the actual cancer cell, they partner with Point Bio on that. And I guess some of the analysts are saying that, that Point Bio's CEO said some re- remarks that had them concerned. We're trying to get our hands on the transcript of that, but haven't been able to yet. So something we're, we're looking out for there. On Vertex side, or I just if the price comes down, that's kind of a welcome development to me. Right. Yeah, these companies, you know, we were talking about NVIDIA 100 times free cash flow. And by the way, that's free cash flow when we've taken their revenues up to $40 billion, which is about twice what they were doing. These companies are, you know, in the range of 20 to 25 times free cash flow and showing pretty good growth and pretty good potential for growth. So much, much less expensive. I know from my goings and comings, some people have listened to past Wednesday talks and and they've become interested in biotech. I think the logic here is that before COVID, biotech, which is for those who uh, haven't been in prior calls, is a German-based company. It it's, was founded by a couple who were emigrated to Germany from Turkey. When COVID came, Pfizer realized that they had the technology to come up with a vaccine, 
But before that, they were working hard on cancer vaccines. Jason will explain that in a little better, more definitive way. But they're back working on cancer vaccines. They are projecting a fair amount of revenue from COVID this year, which did not come through in their second quarter. We have them here still having free cash flow of half a billion dollars. That may not happen, but the neat thing about them as working on these cancer vaccines is because of COVID, they've accumulated about $20 billion of cash that they've held on to. So the cost of running their R&D program and their, uh, you know, it's about $2 billion a year now. <clears throat> That's 10 years. On the other hand, <clears throat> these medicines can, first of all, they can fail trials. Even if they're making it through the different trials, trials, it takes a long, long time. And with that, we've got, oh, I don't know, just about two or three minutes left. Why don't we have Jason just give us an update on BioNTech? Sure. You, you mentioned R&D and their R&D budget just over a year ago was $1.6 billion. That ballooned to $2.7 billion. So when I saw that, that was a concern for me, knowing that the COVID vaccine revenue wasn't going to last forever. And as we're seeing, it's really cut back. They, BioNTech says they're basing their projected revenue on what Pfizer's expecting, but most of that revenue is coming from selling a vaccine for $110 retail in pharmacies. And I just don't think they're going to have the level of sales that they're expecting. And I do anticipate BioNTech's free cash flow to go to go negative. So might there be a better buying entry point? Probably. It's kind of what I'm expecting. That said, by the end of this year, they're supposed to read out data on a melanoma cancer vaccine trial. Um, and that will be extremely telling on, on what their technology is capable of. So looking forward to hearing that, that, you know, but that's by the end of the year. So we've got a lot of things could change between now and, and December. Jason, just to finish up, when you call something a cancer vaccine in two or three minutes, when you call a medicine a vaccine for cancer, what exactly are you referring to in terms of the technology? Yeah. So, so you're in, in, these are mRNA vaccines. So we've, all learned about that through COVID and, and you're injecting an agent to stimulate an immune response in the body. And then that immune response then does something useful, whether it's attacking a virus, but in the case of melanoma, it's going to attack the cancer cells specifically. So it's, it's stimulating the immune response to look for specific proteins on the surface of these cells and then supercharge your immune system to attack those where otherwise they would you know, just assume it's a normal, healthy cell and leave it alone. And, and that's how your, your cancers and tumors grow. So rather than, rather than, you know, delivering a drug right to it, you're programming the body's immune system to do the heavy lifting, to do the work for you. Right. Which will have a huge advantage as compared to current cancer treatments. Absolutely. We're very impressed that Mike was able to participate by Starlink when I realized how well he was doing on Starlink. I uh, I thought, oh my goodness, we're going to chase us out of all our positions and wire things, you know, including Dish or Comcast, which is one I own. But Mike has cautioned that even though it's working awfully well and there's a great deal of potential for Starlinks, that as Jason said earlier, you're probably going to pay a little more, but for your own home or business or whatnot, you probably you're probably going to 
want to have the wire, even though it's going to cost you more per month. But we'll get into more of all of this next week. In the meantime, everyone stay healthy and be well. Talk next week. The views expressed on this podcast are the host alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the host nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty expressed or implied is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.